The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. The body of Christ gathers all over our world listening to Jesus, the head. Local communities salt the earth. God supernaturally gifts his body in order to make a kingdom impact right now. God also assigns leaders who are accountable to God and make them responsible for the flock. The New Testament is rich with images and metaphors that depict the duties and the responsibilities of pastors and elders. They are pictured as leaders and overseers and shepherds and teachers and warners and servants and stewards and comforters and examples. But the one image, the one image that pulls all these functions together is that of parents or parenting. Like pastors, parents lead and oversee and shepherd and teach and warn and serve and comfort and are examples to their children. Pastors, in turn, are like parents to their spiritual family, the church. Paul writes this in the first letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14 and 15. He says this, I'm not writing to you folks at the Corinth church to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others teach you about Christ, you only have one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So many of you know we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. And if you want, you can turn your Bibles to the last part of chapter 12, and we're going to meander into chapter 13. We're one week from closing this out. In the closing section of this epistle, Paul's paternal tendencies focus on several issues of great importance to the church. But let's pray before we open it up. O oh Lord, Father, O oh Heavenly Father, O oh Holy God, you are a God of compassion and mercy. You are slow to get angry and you are filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Your ways are perfect and your actions are just. We fear you and we stand in awe of you. We don't understand your thoughts or your ways, yet, Lord, we trust you. You are our refuge in the time of storm. You are our shield from our enemy's arrows. You deliver us. Yet, Father, we live in the midst of chaos and trouble, yet you come to rescue we call for help to live out our life in this world. We pray for our community, our country, 
in our world. We know, dear Father, that there seems to be more anger and more division and more harsh, harsh words. Yet we know you have called us to live in this place. Encourage your flock, Father. Draw people to yourself. We pray specifically for the church, your bride. There's some in this area we'd like to pray for, and that's a grace point in Emmanuel and Life Bridge. Father, we know that you have given us breath and that you have encouraged us to be salt and light wherever we go. So we pray for our flock, those who are in the house right now, and those who are watching online. We pray for our ministries. We pray for our leaders. We pray, dear God, that we would bring you glory and honor with all of our decisions and all of our words and all of our actions. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You are the fountain of life, Father. Pour out your unfailing love on those who love you. We love you. And pray this in your son's amazing name. Amen. Amen. Paul is jealous for the church. He desires the church to thrive in spite of, well, the hard times that they've been put in. He desires that they would live life large in the midst of harsh realities. You know, that was the call to the Corinth church. They lived in some pretty difficult times. There was persecution from the state and from the religious Jews. He knows that the Corinthian believers had drifted and strayed from the truth. Paul would not be a spectator to any of this. There were some things in that church that was restricting their growth and their maturity. So like a loving father, Paul passionately shares his heart, hoping the church will respond well to the last paragraphs of his letter. So if you would, you can turn your Bibles or your flat screens to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to start reading in verse 14. For those that don't have Bibles, you can follow along on the screen behind me. And this is what Paul writes. Now I'm coming to you for a third time, and I will not be a burden to you. I don't want what you have. I want you. After all, children don't provide for their parents. Rather, parents provide for their children. I will gladly spend myself, Paul says, and all that I have for you. Even though the more I love you, the less you love me. Paul ends this letter saying, you know, I'm hoping my third visit with you will be good for both of us. The first visit when he planted the church. Apparently, again, he came a second time and confronted some of the issues that were in the church. 
Meanwhile, he'd been writing letters back and forth. So this is the fourth letter that he's writing to this church. And he reminds them that he's going to come and visit them again. And when he does, he says, I want you to feel my love for you. But it seems like the more I love you, the less I feel your love. You're cold. You're unresponsive. You're distant. And Paul actually didn't understand this lack of love. He showed his paternal love by perfectly nurturing and pleading and encouraging and urging and even at times disciplining the church. Everything he did was to strengthen the church, but the folks in Corinth didn't see it. In fact, let's read that. In chapter 12, starting at verse 19. Paul writes, Perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No, 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 no. We tell you this as Christ's servants and with God as our witness. Everything. And if you mark your Bibles, I'd encourage you to box that, circle that one, underline it. But everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. For I'm afraid, Paul writes, that when I come, I won't like what I find. And you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling and jealousy and anger and selfishness and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorderly behavior. Yes, I'm afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved. Because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity, your sexual immorality, and your eagerness for lustful pleasure. Paul's emotional. Paul is fearful. This is God's servant pouring out his heart to a church that he dearly loves. It's interesting if you read this text that he uses the word afraid or fear or fearful. But I think Paul did it not because he didn't trust God, but because he feared God. You see, Paul fears that they haven't repented. Now, no one knows exactly sure of all the things that were still going on there. Paul apparently did. But he knew this, that their God loved them very much and knew what sin did, not only to them as individuals, but to a church. And Paul knew because God is a God of his word. He feared God. He knew there would be some ramifications. He understood that sin was going to be dealt with if these folks hadn't dealt with it. They weren't taking God's word seriously. Then he he says this, he fears you won't like my response. 
And he's talking to those who haven't repented. And there was, as on authority, what's going to happen is Paul's not going to stand there. If there's sin in the camp, he's going to address it. He's going to confront it, as you're going to find out, because this is so critical for the life of the church, for the testimony of the church, for the people in the church. Love encourages, but love also corrects. Then there's a line, and it might even just take you back just a little bit. Paul fears that God will humble Paul. Now, we'd already shared in chapter 12 how Paul was humbled with a thorn in the flesh, and that he received uh, the message from God himself and said, Hey, Paul, you're just going to need to know that you're going to keep the thorn. My grace is going to be sufficient for you, and it's going to keep you humble." But being humbled by God in this context. Let me read from you one of my uh, favorite uh, commentators, John MacArthur. He says this about God humbling Paul. He says, to have the Corinthian church, which Paul had pastored for nearly two years, marked by unrepentant sin, well, that would cause him shame. It would also give ammunition to those critics who attacked his authenticity. Paul had learned the valuable lesson and the importance of humility. But to be humbled by God was one thing. To be humbled by the Corinthians' failure to repent was something else. Unrepentant sin in his congregation was heartbreaking, distressing, and discouraging for Paul. It crushes him and saps his strength. Understandably, then, Paul was anxious about what he would find when he arrived in Corinth. And then the scriptures tell us that he will grieve if they haven't given up their old sins. Wow. Most of us only use that word when we are suffering some extreme loss. I mean, you're probably not going to grieve if a baseball team loses. You're probably not going to grieve if you get a red light instead of a green. You're probably not going to grieve if you got gypped and didn't get enough Culver's fries. All right. You might say something, you might talk to somebody, but, but not grieve. You grieve when you lose something so important. It could be your health. It could be a spouse. It could, and you can fill the blank in. But we've all been around as, as caskets begin to close. And there's the widow grabbing and pouring out her heart. They're the kids surrounded, not ready to say goodbye to their dad. And you hear the wailing, the gasping for air. Literally, I I don't know if I'm going to cope kind of response. This is what Paul is saying. 
He's saying, do, do you know? I fear that I might be grieving. I might be heaving. You, you don't understand. You're not dealing with some of the sin that I've shared with you. It's an abomination against God. I think if we understand this, we understand Paul's pastor's heart. It's not that Paul was any better. It's not that Paul had already learned and already arrived. He just knew what sin does to individuals and to churches. He was grieving. Please, deal with this. Do you understand what rebellion against God looks like and is and the ramifications? Paul's jealous for this church. He wants the best for them. And not only little sin, but any sin is an abomination to God. His wish, of course, was for the church to be repenting of their sin, to grow in grace and become more like Jesus. Because that's God's goal. His fear was that their spiritual growth would be hindered by unrepentant sin. The sins that Paul lists fall into two categories. Sins that divide the church and sins that destroy the purity of the church. Paul knows that the enemy does want to destroy the unity of the church. Guarantee it. I don't know if you remember at the end of Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way back. He's returning from one of his missionary trips. And he meets the, uh, the Ephesian elders, the elders from the Ephesian church. He was there the longest. It was probably the most mature out of all the churches. And on his way, he just said, hey, I'm not going to be able to stop at Ephesus. Could you meet me? And I just want to share with you my heart. And this is what he writes to the elders of a most mature church that Paul had planted. He says, hey guys, guard yourselves and God's people. Protect them. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you guys as leaders. And then he says this. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave. Not sparing the flock. That's a nice image. Even, he goes a little further, men in your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out, guys. Remember the three years I was with you. My constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. You know, it's hard not to think of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And if you have your Bibles, you can just shoot over there. I'm I'm just going to read a a, a few verses there. But in John chapter 17, this is Jesus literally right before he goes to the garden, right before he gets crucified. 
And it's called the high priestly prayer. But in John 17, one of the things, starting at verse 11, talking to his disciples, all right, he says, now, talking to God, his disciples in the room, now, Father, protect them, these guys, these disciples, by the power of your name, so they will be united like we are. Whoa, that's a standard. I I want these guys to be as close, as unified as you and I are, Father. (laughs) Then this gets really cool because Jesus doesn't stop there. He starts praying for you and for me. Starting in verse 20, he says, I'm not praying only for those disciples, but also for all who ever believe in me through their message. Listen to what he prays. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, and the Father and I am in you. And may they be in us, so the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them my glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Oh, isn't it odd that Jesus didn't pray for the prosperity of the church or even that so many disciples would be made? These are all good requests. He says, I want these guys, to be unified. And so Paul looks at some of these sins in the church at Corinth. He describes them. He lists them because he knows that these sins divide a church. He knows. He knows without any doubt that if these aren't taken care of, It'll be impossible for them to be salt and light. Look at these descriptors, words that don't describe a church well and I think literally make us cringe. First one, quarreling. Well, we can look at that and maybe it's just, you know, something that, that is little, but you just don't agree on some things. Jealousy. You're not getting what you think you deserve. Anger. You're so riled up. Angry at someone or some people or a group in the church. Selfishness. Slander. Slander. That we use our words to tear apart or rip apart a person's character. Or decisions. Gossip. Talking about others behind their back. Arrogance. Or disorderly behavior. Oh. I'm assuming those things are present. I'm assuming they had been present. And this is where Paul is hoping, again, that it's not still there. That they've dealt with these things. That there's no more divisions. Remember, even in the very first part of uh, the letter in 1 Corinthians, 
There were all these different schisms and divisions of who they wanted as a preacher. Some wanted Paul, some wanted Apollos. And he addressed that. No division in the church. Paul also knew the enemy wants to destroy the purity of the church. He uses three words, impurity, sexual immorality, and lustful pleasure. Uh, Let me kind of define those for us a little bit. Impurity, especially in this context of the Corinth church, was really talking about the cultic worship of idols. It was a land, again, a Greek-run government. And there were idols everywhere in Corinth. And it involved cultic kinds of worship. It's just, I, I just want you to know, you can't worship like you used to worship and worship God. God is a jealous God. Sexual immorality. Again, we don't understand all that went on in Corinth. But Corinth had a reputation of being somewhat the most promiscuous city, at least in the known world at that time. But what he is saying is this, is that, (laughs) do you understand that any sexual act with anyone other than a man's wife or a woman's husband is an abomination to God? Do, Do you know that, church? And then lastly, Lustful pleasure. I think in our context today, it probably means porn. Novels or other fantasies that we go to to satisfy sexual desires. Wow. You know, saddest statistics even today is that Porn used to affect 10 or 15 or 20% of those who are uh, church attenders. Those statistics are skyrocketing. 50, 60, 70%. Any sin, any sin, and this is why Paul is, is going a little ballistic right now. Any sin, it does not matter, destroys fellowship with God and hurts the church. And I can tell you this, no church plans to have this on their resume. Oh, by the way, I hope you come to our church. There's lots of quarreling, jealousy, anger. So, no, 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 no. No church wants that. It doesn't. But one thing I've noticed is that oftentimes we drift into resumes. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the author writes this, So we must listen carefully to the truth which we have heard, or we may drift away. We just sort of stop obeying. We start to dabble. We let grudges grow. And all of a sudden it becomes full out. 
Paul was absolutely intolerant of sin because he knew it would infect, sicken, weaken, and ultimately destroy the church. Just quickly, you remember back in Joshua 7, they had just the children of Israel conquered Jericho. But they were just given one instruction. Don't take any of the booty. None. None of the gold. None of, don't, don't take any of that. Destroy it all. Well, there was a guy named Achan. And he decided, <laughs> I'm above that. They went out to war soon after Jericho to a city called Ai. And they were routed. In fact, the scriptures tell us in Joshua 7, 36 men lost their lives. 36 moms didn't have sons. 36 wives didn't have husbands. And maybe 36 kids didn't have dads. All because Achan said it was okay. You look in Acts chapter 5. This is a hard story to stomach. You've got Ananias and Sapphira and the whole church. They're going bonkers and they're giving money like crazy and supporting each other and supporting the ministries. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sell property and they bring, well, some of it to the apostles. Said, use it, use it. And they gave the impression that it was all of it. And God struck them both down, dead. (laughs) I'm not sure how God works all the time. I know if he worked like that, I would be dead. I would. And probably most of us. But as I look at this, Paul... Paul, he, he just, he wants the flock to know that sin hurts them. He's addressed it over and over and over again. He's coming a third time. He doesn't want to do this again. Do you understand? This hurts you. It hurts kingdom advancement. Paul assures them then, it sounds so harsh. He assures the flock that he will personally deal with an unrepentant by God's power and with God's authority. So he says this in chapter 13. It makes sense and it follows. He says, hey, so before I come, examine yourself. Check it out. If any of these are the things that you haven't repented of, (laughs) do that. So in chapter 13, starting in verse 5, is what Paul writes. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you, or in some of your translations, live in you. If not... You have failed the test of genuine faith. It's interesting that Paul asked the church to self-evaluate. Actually, see if you are a child of God. Oh, 
if, if actually your faith is genuine. Because his logic is this. Folks with genuine faith don't consistently act this way. There are times you slip and there's times you sin and there's times you run from God. But you don't continue down this path. Remember, Jesus himself shocked his audiences. He talked about genuine faith all the time. And Jesus believed that genuine faith changes behavior. He says in Matthew chapter 7, not everybody that calls me Lord, Lord, you know, that's what a lot of people call me. They're not going to be part of the kingdom. Whoa. Matthew 25, a parable about the last judgment, one of the last judgments. And basically Jesus said this, it's really how you behaved. In other words, real faith changes how you behave. How you treat others matter. James chapter 2, we, we spent quite a bit of time in the book of James. James was Jesus' brother. And he said, this faith without works is dead. There's always going to be fruit that follows real, true, genuine faith. In fact, what I did, and, and we'll quickly go over this, but there are marks of genuine faith. You may look and say, well, well, am I one of God's kids? Well, here's some things that ought to happen if you are. Repentance for sin happens often. It's confession. We start treating sin more um, drastically. We aren't casual about sin. We don't put it in the categories. And when God asks us to forgive, we need to do it. If God asks us to love someone we really don't like so much, we need to do it. And if we don't, we repent. Because we understand that God's holiness doesn't change. God doesn't talk to you or me if I've got sin in my life. He doesn't. Doesn't hear my prayers. Doesn't give us the energy we need to do what we're supposed to do. You see, we have this idea that God's our buddy sometimes, puts our arm around us, and oh, we'll let things go. God doesn't do that. That's why Jesus died so that we might be restored to a relationship. And that every time we sin, we can confess our sins. And because of God's mercy, we can be forgiven and restored. You see, sin always restricts a relationship with God. So if we don't repent, if we don't, we don't feel like it, we have no desire to repent, Maybe your faith isn't genuine. What about obedience? Obedience is literally submission to God. Nobody likes to submit, right? Don't we just love being our own bosses? But realistically, God is God. And God gives us principles. And God helps us understand what's important in our lives and how to treat others. We can submit to God. We can obey God. But we don't. If 
you're not desiring to obey God. If you are not changed from the inside out and aren't a new creation and begin to submit to the lordship of Jesus, maybe your faith isn't genuine. And the last thing I just look at is that I think one of the fruits of genuine faith is that we love God and people better. We do. You find yourself being drawn to your Savior. And loving people that you really don't like. You know, I don't know, at least in this context, if there were those that didn't know Jesus. There were those maybe pretending. But at least it was a wake-up call for those who looked at sin casually. Then Paul just about closes up. Look at uh, verse 7, chapter 13. He says, We pray to God that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come. Even if it makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. For we, can, uh, for we cannot oppose the truth, but we must al- always stand for the truth. We are glad to seem weak, even if it helps show that you are really strong. It says, we pray that you will become mature. I am writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. For, when, for I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not tear your down. This is Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is that this church would mature. That we would actually respond to correction. You know, it's interesting. If you read through Proverbs, one of the themes over and over and over again that that comes out is that a wise person, man or woman, child, If you listen to correction, you will have a full life. Ultimately, it's God's correction. In Proverbs 12.1, to learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. Proverbs 15.10, whoever hates correction will die. Paul hopes in these last few paragraphs that he does not need to correct. He wants to use his God-given authority to strengthen. He wants to pump their tires. He wants to encourage them on the walk. He doesn't want to confront the disunity, the disharmony, the impurity. He says, I will, but... Oh, it would make me so happy if you responded before I came and we could spend time pumping one another's tires. 
You see, God gives his authority to leaders for both. For strengthening and for discipline. Now, as I wrap up, let me remind us again that we are God's plan A. There is no plan B. Nothing shouts about a family like unity and purity. It's our mission. It's our call. We have an opportunity to go out from these walls to be able to proclaim and point people to Jesus. And when these folks come back in our walls, their jaws will drop as we walk together with God. And the love that oozes from each one to each other. How quickly people are forgiven. The grace that is extended. That there aren't any, well, grudges, and that we walk together in God's grace. (laughs) Doesn't that get you excited? I think God continually reminds all of us, continually reminds your leaders, continually reminds that, you know what? Our actions affect us and affect everyone else. May God give us grace to be able to move forward together, loving our God and loving each other and making an impact in some of the hardest cultural times that you've ever been part of. How cool is that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you for your grace. We thank you again for all that you've done in our lives. Lord, there there are times that uh, we disagree with you. There are times that we want to take revenge. Or certain people don't deserve to be graced. Or, Father, we put sins in categories. Really small ones. Oh, but but not big ones. Father, we pray as as the publican prayed, have mercy on us for we are sinners. Help us see you. Help us understand how much you love us. Help us understand how important unity and purity is in this church and may you bless us richly as we listen to you we pray all these things in your son's name